Welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast, episode 77. Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here weekdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations in Maine and all around the planet with streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of very talented folks today joining us on the program. Uh, one is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as part of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, but he's also carved out quite a music career for himself and his work with Conan O'Brien and then touring the country uh, with his own band as well. Max Weinberg in the second half of the podcast this week, but right out of the box, uh, a guy who has won Emmys, Tonys, Golden Globe Awards, acclaimed for his work on stage, television, and motion pictures, and in the music world. He's uh, working on a brand new album, and he's touring the country right now, including a visit to Maine, coming up very soon at the Criterion Theater in Bar Harbor. We had a wonderful time talking with actor and singer Mandy Patinkin. Thank you, Rich. Thanks for having me. Well, we're looking forward to the show at the beautiful Criterion Theater in Bar Harbor uh, on November 3rd. You're headed out on a tour starting in a couple of weeks. What is it that you like most about performing for a live audience? Everything about it. It's, it's immediate. It happens right at that moment. We all come into that space having our lives that day that are personal and private and also public being what we all share that happened in our country and the world at large. And so you get to sing these songs. Some are familiar, some are not familiar to people, but you might have sung some of these songs a hundred times or a million times, and uh, but never that day with what's happened in your life that day and everyone else's life in that room that day. Some things that we've all shared, and it echoes through all of us as we listen. And the comfort of being with a group of people who, who are also interested in listening to these ideas that these songwriters have written that give me comfort, that I connect with, and that I'm not alone, that I'm with other people that also like these ideas and, and connect as well. And that, it's nice that to feel alone. Uh, you'll be doing songs uh, from your recent albums. The, the Diary albums are, are so wonderful, and I, I understand for you it was a very different way of recording. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I'd basically done show tunes for 30-some years. Then my piano player, Paul Ford, retired. And then my Homeland shooting schedule got really intense. And so I kind of, you know, pulled away from the music stuff for about two or three years. And then I was missing it so much, I thought I was starving to death, and I realized I was missing the music. So my friend Bob Hurwitz, who uh, also started None Such Rex, he said, I have somebody I want you to meet named Thomas Bartlett. He's a very gifted young musician producer, engineer, the whole thing, he's a genius. And I meet Thomas, and Thomas, after our meeting, sends me on Christmas Eve 2017 300 songs to listen to. Now, Thomas <laughs> does not know any, not one single show to. He has no knowledge of them. But he is a singer-songwriter genius, and everybody wants to work with him. So he sends me 300 songs to listen to. I, I lock myself in a room on Christmas Eve, and I listen, and I chose 28 of them. We then go in the studio, and we start pressing the record button, and I said, I want to make a diary, a journal, of whatever we're working on today. And when, whenever we have 10 or 11 songs, we'll just put it out. We're not going to have some album concept or whatever, just like what we're working on right now. So we did that, and, and sometimes it's the very first take. Sometimes we work it because we're finding something. And, uh, and then we put out three diaries in 2018, one 
and, and digitally. So they're just out there. Sometimes it's like a tree falling in a forest. No one hears it because <laughs> it's not the normal pattern of a proper CD and a tour and press, et cetera. And so, um, uh, and, and so we made three of these diaries so far, uh, each with 10 or 11 plus songs, and one called January 2018, one called April, May 2018, one called uh, December 2018. And then I said, let's put out a record. I said, okay. And I'm making all these songs, and I, at the same time, I was saying, I want to do this stuff live, publicly, for my audiences. And, uh, and I got to figure out how to do it. And I, I made a test, and uh, I mixed it with some show tunes, but it's much heavier on the new singer-songwriter material. So we put out a new album that will come out very soon, October 25th, which is about 10 songs from the diaries and one song from something else that I'd done. And then uh, that was appropriate. We put it together in a certain way that expressed what I wanted. And then, uh, and then we tried the tour out, which I did in New York and then in Sydney Opera House in Australia, Melbourne Opera House, Brisbane Opera House, all Australia, and Hawaii and San Fran in November before I left for nine months to shoot the final season of Homeland. And that was a very great experience. I loved it, but I wanted to make some adjustments. We've made those adjustments since then. And now we're ready for the new tour, which begins uh, October 30th. Uh, the album can, includes one of my favorite songs, a great Lyle Lovett tune, If I Had a Boat. Is that a song that was new to you? Absolutely. That was the song, one of the 300 that Thomas brought me. You also do one of your original compositions, Raggedy Ann. Uh, Raggedy Ann on the, on the record, on the, on the new album, uh, one of that song is on that. In the, in the concert that we're doing, I don't do Raggedy Ann, but I do do another song that I wrote uh, called Buckingham. And you also do children and art, and uh, good advice for all of us in there, a little less thinking and a little more feeling. You are a, such a great interpreter of Stephen Sondheim. What is it about his work that you relate to so well? Well, uh, you know, I, I think he's the Shakespeare of our time. I think that if I could write, and I'm trying, but I'm not a great writer. I'm just somebody who's having fun doing it and trying it more and more. But, but Stephen writes what I would write if I could write. And, and really what I think Stephen's about is I think he has a dark nature, but he, he writes to find the light. And, and he, 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 he doesn't give up and he never quits until he, he reaches for the light. And, and I also at times have a dark nature. And, and my life has been about finding the light as well. So it's a, it's a perfect, I connect with everything he writes. And it is, um, you know, God, God bless him. I can't, I'm so grateful that, I, that his music exists for all time. And on top of that, I'm a friend of his and get to know him. And I've gotten to work with him on occasions. And, and I just, yeah, I can't, you know, I always wondered as a young actor, God, what was it like to know Shakespeare being in that <laughs> company? Well, I know. <laughs> Now I know. We're talking with Mandy Patinkin on Downtown. You've had so much success on stage and film and television. I was reading something recently that said that after Yentl, you became the thinking woman's sex symbol. I, I would put that on a business card if it were me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Uh, of course, everybody, I'm sure, wants to ask you about The Princess Bride. We will be no exception here. Was there any inkling at the time that this would have the kind of legs, the kind of traction it's had to really become a classic? Oh, I, I have no idea. 
Rob Reiner asked me to read the script. He said, what part would you like to play? I said, I'd like to play this part. And uh, he said, okay, let me just see how everything else comes down in the casting, make sure everybody matches. And I got the part that I wanted. And, <coughs> pardon me, and, um, and Bill Goldman, William Goldman, wrote down, you know, the first description of Inigo Montoya was the world's greatest sword fighter. So I knew my job was to become a really good sword fighter. So I set about that task. And, uh, and and just did the work like I do any play or anything else. You know, same thing. I loved it. The, the cast, the people, everybody was so wonderful. I felt I should have paid them. They shouldn't have paid me. It was so much fun. And I had no idea what would be after that. It was just a job, you know, like all jobs, but a, a really wonderful job, a loving a job I love. And then the movie comes out, and it, it doesn't do well. It doesn't do well at all. And then somehow... It starts catching on with college students not long after, uh, but not immediately, but, you know, within, a, I think, a few years or something. And then it becomes this cult thing in colleges and goes from generation to generation. And before you know it, you know, kids and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren have all seen it. And, uh, and just like you asking me about it right now, I can never get over that I'm the guy you're talking about that got to be in the movie, <laughs> one of the guys. Uh, you know, it's a dream that came true before I had time to dream it. In that film, you shared a lot of screen time uh, with uh, Andre. Was it difficult with your background as an experienced stage actor and him having no real acting background to create the chemistry that those two characters required for the film? Um, no, he, he is truly the definition of the gentle giant. He will live with me forever. Uh, he was the kindest man I'd ever known. He he had great pain, physical pain from the from the this disease, which you know is, is a, you know where all your organs keep growing past normal, mm. uh, normal normal point. And uh, and in spite of that pain, he pressed on every day. And um, we couldn't be we loved him so much. We whatever he needed, we were there to support him with and. And he was just—he was like being with a just a saint. He was—he was one of the, you know, just one of the gifts to this world. He was really beautiful, and he loved doing this movie. I saw a picture of him when he was 21 years old, leaning on a car on a beach in a small French town. And he told me that I mean, very few people lived in this town. One of them was Samuel Beckett, <laughs> and Samuel Beckett took him to work, took him to school often, and you know, drove him to school. And this was before the giant disease kicked in. He just looked like a, a beautiful, young, tall guy, and uh, but not crazy tall. And um, and then I was told after the movie years later that he always loved that that he would ne once he started wrestling. Somebody said to me he'd he'd like never been more than two days without being on the road wrestling on the circuit. And so the longest time he was anywhere for a static period of time was when we made the movie for four plus months. Uh, and then I heard that he loved it so that he carried a, a, a copy of the movie with him wherever he went because it, it just meant the world to him. Mm -hmm. Mandy Patinkin with us here on Downton. You left Criminal Minds and, and have talked about the reasons behind that. Were you surprised after that to have the opportunity to return to television in Homeland? I was, I was so happy that uh, Homeland came along. Um, with, with the uh, the people that were involved in it, uh, I, I, it was just the perfect fit for me. 
and it was just an extraordinary experience on on endless endless levels. And one of the great gifts was that um, uh, I've done several interviews today, so if I'm repeating myself, shut me up right away. But, <laughs> but um, we were in Berlin shooting the fourth season. Uh, did I tell you this yet? No. Okay. We were in Berlin shooting the fourth season, and it was at the moment when the uh, and the first episode was about it took place in a Syrian refugee camp because Homeland would often track current events. And um, it was at the exact same moment that 125,000 refugees were trying to get uh, to um, uh, to safety and uh, find refuge and rescue uh, and a new beginning getting across the Balkan route, trying to get to Germany at that time specifically. And uh, I remember seeing these images and immediately thinking, oh, my God, that's my ancestors. Those are my family. Mm. And uh, I want to be with them. But I had this job to do for six and a half months to film this fictional world while the real world was burning. And these people, you know, I, I were so desperate. And the moment we finished the last shot, I literally drove from the set to the to the airport, flew to Lesbos, Greece. And within, you know, a short time, uh, one of the bo- small boats came up on shore and a baby was put in my arms. And we thought that she'd expired. She'd ended up having a, a epileptic attack. But because I was working with the International Rescue Committee, we got her immediate medical care and got the family put together and got them on the way to, to Germany. And then so much tragedy has happened since with in March 2016, the EU closed their doors to refugees. Uh, this new administration came in and dropped the quota down from 85 in the previous administration to 45. And this year they just announced 18. And it's a crime against humanity. You know, when when our when all the people that are called Americans needed to come here and, and come for whatever reason, uh, Americans, past Americans welcomed them. And, and it is our duty to our fellow human beings. And so the privilege that Homeland had given me, uh, which was a platform, and, 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 the, and the moment that just appeared, which, you know, just caught my, uh, my you know, I connected to, um, is uh, one of the, you know, that I, that I try to keep focus and awareness on these people's lives, where so many, it's a global problem right now, led by the United States, I might add where so many nations are turning their backs on people in such dire need. We mustn't do that. We can all work together and help, first of all, to stop the conflict and then um, find ways to rescue these people. Between conflict and climate change, this is a growing business, not a diminishing one. And and we have to. And and my grandfather, my grandpa Max used to have a saying in Yiddish, which means the wheel is always turning. So if you find yourself on top at some given moment, you know, just know that that wheel turns and one day you'll be on the bottom. And it's the classic story. If somebody knocks on your door and you don't open it and welcome them and you're not there for them, one day you may knock on someone's door. And, and if you want them to open that door and help you or your loved one, behave like a human being. A great message indeed. Mandy, uh, thank you so much. We appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you for being with us, and we look forward to the show in Bar Harbor in a couple of weeks. Please ask your folks to come. I, I, I can't wait to do it, and, and I want everybody to come to see it. Thanks. Mandy Patinkin here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll take a little break, a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. 
We'll come back and talk music with Max Weinberg of the East Street Band next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. And time to talk to a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the longtime drummer for the E Street Band, Went on to great success uh, leading his band on Conan O'Brien's show and is out touring the country with Max Weinberg's Jukebox. We had a chance to talk about that, the concept behind the live shows he's doing these days, and look back at his musical career. Here's Max Weinberg on Downtown the Podcast. Rich, it's my pleasure to be with you on your show. Can you explain for people uh, what happens when the Jukebox rolls into town? Well, as you said, it's Max Weinberg's jukebox, and for those of us old enough to remember, a jukebox is that machine in an East Coast diner, or really anywhere, but it's a little silver machine you used to put your nickels in to get a song that you wanted. Now it's probably $10 when they still have (laughs) these machines, but you put your money in, you get the song. So what we do is we do all audience requests of songs that I sort of look at as the, well, certainly the soundtrack of my life from the 50s, 60s, 70s, a couple of 80s songs, uh, favorite songs of mine, basically songs that I enjoy listening to and and that I enjoy playing, and in some cases learned how to play the drums by listening to them and analyzing them. But it's a fun night, you know, Rich. It's not really a concert. It's a, it's a party. I like to think of it as a party. Very interactive. I will tell stories about either the songs or maybe some of the songs that I've recorded uh, that we play throughout my career. I go out in the audience. Uh, if there's a drummer out there or a singer, I may invite them up to play. So it's very participatory. And the audience picks, now you've you've limited it a little bit, but but not much. What did I read? The, is it 200 songs they get to choose from? Well, it's a video scroll that plays on a screen, and it's about 250 songs. And generally... Well, we probably do about 25 songs. They're different every night. In some cases, people love to hear the Beatles. Who doesn't? Other cases, it's other groups from the English invasion of the 60s, so-called. Uh, there could be some, there's some Bruce in there, of course. I can't get by without playing a couple <laughs> of uh, Bruce songs. Um, but it's really eclectic. It's kind of like top 40 music was in the 60s, where on the charts, as they used to call them, I guess they still do, but it's a little different. You would have the Beatles, the Stones, the Dave Clark Five, next to Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, next to Aretha Franklin, the Motown groups, the Stax groups, all over the map. And that's basically what we're doing. I love the sound of that. And I have to think it's got to be great fun for the band as well. Well, it is. You know, uh, these are songs that as Jersey musicians, we were generally required when we came up in the 60s to play from 9 to 3 in the morning, and you had to play top 40. The bands that struggled with playing original music didn't work. So all the bands I was in from North Jersey, um, there's actually a bit of a dividing line between the North Jersey bands in the 60s, of which I was a part, and the South Jersey bands. 
which Steve Van Zandt and Bruce Springsteen were uh, a part of that scene where it was more blues oriented and original music. But we had to sort of play the hits of the day in the bars and the clubs and the CYO dances. And I enjoyed kind of imitating all my favorite drummers. And what's ironic about the jukebox show that's going to be in your town this Saturday night is I'm still playing the same music that I played 60 years ago. <laughs> in some cases, you know, it could be, uh, you know, walk, don't run by the ventures, uh, which was one of the songs I learned how to play on the drums or Wipeout. Uh, so it's, like I said, it's all over the place, but we respect this material. So we, we approach it as sort of the, uh, the, uh, the vocabulary, and the dictionary encyclopedia for us as musicians. I have to think and guess that as a as the heartbeat of any band, the drummer, you must have grown up listening to the guys, the classics like Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, people like that. Well, you know, I didn't actually. I really discovered uh, drumming through rock and roll. Uh, my hero and dear friend who, who just passed away last year, DJ Fontana. Oh, Elvis's Elvis guy. Presley's. Yeah. Yeah, he was his original drummer, his first drummer, and uh, DJ was an amazing drummer, just a, a hero of mine. And when I saw Elvis play with uh, DJ and Scotty Moore and Bill Black on the Milton Berle show, <laughs> and I think it was April of '56, it was six months before Ed Sullivan, and it was a it was a stationary camera, so you saw the four of them playing through the whole song. And when they hit the middle of Hound Dog, and DJ did that big snare drum roll. It, you know, it was one of those moments in my life. It was the moment in my life, but everyone has moments where they suddenly see the future. That's when I saw my future. I was only five years old, but I had a rhythm. I loved country and Western music, so that naturally led me into rock and roll. The jazz drums, the great jazz drummers, I actually didn't uh, uh, discover a love for until I started listening to them when I was much, much older. And uh, I'm honored to say that Buddy Rich was a close friend of mine, and I, you know, go to see him whenever I could. And what you had at a Buddy Rich show was basically a room full of drummers and their girlfriends or wives <laughs> taken along to see Buddy Rich. <laughs> and my wife and I were big fans of Buddy. He was always very, very nice to us. I never got to see Gene Krupa play, but, you know, you look at the history of any music in America, and those guys were kind of the history of it. And particularly after I started being uh, playing on TV as a band leader, I kind of needed a persona to develop. And I must say, I looked to, and I'm nobody rich, but I looked to Buddy Rich and his many, many appearances with Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. You know, he's always smiling. He always looked like he was having the time of his life. I understand he, he wasn't always smiling to the guys in the band, but I just love the way he played. And uh, I think one of the, the compliments, if I can uh, uh, brag on myself for a second, but one of the favorite things that ever been said by me was by Bruce when he inducted the E Street Band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, was he said, and this blew my mind, he said that I found an intersection of Buddy Rich, Bernard Purdy, the great soul drummer, and Keith Moon. Wow. Uh, so, And that was really something, because you know those three drum styles are radically different, but I guess I've been able to kind of internalize uh, those styles, and I would add a lot of Ringo and Charlie Watson there, but um, I, I love all drummers. I love seeing young drummers 
my son is a drummer, uh, a very, very talented drummer he is. Uh, and I learn from everybody I see. I may not be able to play that way, but I do learn and, and kind of uh, put my own spin on things like that. Well, your days watching Carson and uh, Ed Shaughnessy and Doc's band uh, certainly paid off. You had such a great run uh, with Conan O'Brien through the years. But I have to think that that's got to be a hard gig to do that every single night and limit some opportunities as well when you're doing that. Well, it's a it's a real job. You know, it is 9 to 5, although the hours are 11 to 7. And we would tape at 5.30, and your day is made up. I was a music director, which means you're at the executive level at NBC and General Electric at the time who owned NBC. So you go through the same training largely that the General Electric executives do. And actually that was very, very educational for me. But the day is made up of meetings, rehearsals. You know, I ended up doing a lot of comedy, so there was rehearsals for that. And then you get to show off on TV for an hour. <laughs> so <laughs> it was perfect, uh, actually, in so many ways. I, I think the best thing about it was uh, I was able to be a full-time dad to my kids who were, you know, young and growing up. Uh, I think my son Jay was uh, three years old when I went on that show. And he grew up, he and my daughter, Allie, grew up in the NBC studios in New York. And it was a fabulous opportunity for us to experience all that, the studios there uh, as a family. Uh, but, yeah, it's a real job, you know, with real responsibility and a budget and uh, all the things that you wouldn't think a musician was interested in. <laughs> but I did have an interest, and I had a uh, an ability to to sort of inhabit that role. I, I enjoyed it quite a, quite a bit. I did it for 17 years. And that's a long time <laughs> to... Uh, uh, to do it. And of course, the TV landscape is totally different than it was when I was on TV. It's nothing like it was. Uh, you know, this is pre Netflix, pre streaming. Mm. We started before cell phones, if you can believe it. And uh, uh, so it was, in, in, in retrospect, you look back on those years, and uh, it was the gold, the end of the golden age of particularly late night TV. You know, started with uh, Steve Allen in the 50s and Jack Parr. And uh, I was, I am very pleased. I shouldn't say was. I am now very pleased that I was a small part in that land, landscape of late night TV. Uh, one of my favorite things was when, when we started doing The Tonight Show, which, as you probably know, didn't last very long. <laughs> uh, I saw my name in the same sentence as Doc Severinsen. Yeah. And that was probably the Tonight Show experience for me that was the highlight was seeing my name because I admired that band. So, you know, Doc Severinsen, as you say, Ed Shaughnessy on drums through oh, over 30 years, and you had incredible players. Conti Gondoli was a trumpeter. Um, fantastic musicians uh, who played in that band. They could play anything. So I admired that when I was a kid. Uh, Bruce had his solo album that came out back in the summertime, but word also out that He's written some songs for the E Street Band. Will there be another album with Bruce and everybody together? That's a great question. <laughs> That's why he's called the boss. He makes the uh, decisions. <laughs> I've seen some of those uh, references uh, that you talked about. Um, uh, would that be so? It would be great. You know, we uh, we all have our our uh, uh, individual musical lives that we uh, we like to keep going because if you stop you actually do lose the ability. And I haven't stopped. I've done 175 shows in the last two and a half years. 
I love playing the drums. There's a lot of traveling involved with that. There's a lot of pre-show activities. But I really love the time that I get to spend playing the drums, showing people a good time. And um, so with the E Street Band, we're uh, it was a little more organized when, for example, Steve Van Zandt was on The Sopranos and I was on the late-night programs uh, where we had to... Uh, you know, start planning a year in advance. Uh, those days are gone as well, where we take that much planning. And at this point, anything and everything we do is kind of crazy. You know, we've had a great run. And uh, if that's in his plans, I would uh, heartily endorse that. But at the moment, there's no, you know, there's no set plans. Well, plans Not that at my level, I know about, <laughs> you know, Plans should be for you, if you're listening, to get to the Waterville Opera House this Saturday night and see Max Weinberg's Jukebox, a, a tour through great American music. Max, we've enjoyed your work for many, many years. Thank you so much for making time for us today. My pleasure. Take care. Max Weinberg with us on the podcast. Great to talk to him. Both of them, you never know. They're both first-timers on our show, Carrie, and you don't know. And the Max Weinberg thing, we, we pulled together pretty late before an appearance here in Maine. He was fantastic. It was such a last-minute uh, interview that we got set up. Uh, he he came on and was really generous with his time yeah. and uh, had a great conversation all over the place with him. And Mandy Patinkin, um, the same thing there. He was uh, wonderfully uh, gracious, did a little promo for our show. And, and uh, clearly, we talked about this when he was uh, on the program, on the radio show, that he thought about things. It wasn't just giving you the canned answers. He really took the time to think things over and uh, a couple of those stories, but especially the story he told about Andre the Giant in response to your question. That was great. It was great hearing uh, hearing that. It was one of those questions that you asked just because it was. It was an odd pairing. Mm. Experienced Broadway stage guy, somebody that had never done a real acting role before and uh, just... The question I was interested in that went a completely different way than I was expecting. Yeah. Uh, great to have both of them on. Mandy Patinkin, Max Weinberg. And thank you for joining us as well. We remind you, podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown.